great section this morning to read is from John chapter 8, starting with verse 31. So Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They replied to Jesus, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been anyone's slaves. So how can you say that we will be set free? Jesus answered them, I can guarantee this truth. Whoever lives a sinful life is a slave to sin. A slave doesn't live in the home forever, but a son does. So if the son sets you free, you will be absolutely free. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. However, you want to kill me because you don't like what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what I have seen in my father's presence. But you do what you've heard your father. The Jews replied to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus told them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. I'm a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. But now you want to kill me. Abraham wouldn't have done that. You're doing what your father does. The Jews said to Jesus, We're not illegitimate children. God is our only father. Jesus told them, If God were your father, you would love me. After all, I'm here and I came from God. I didn't come on my own. Instead, God sent me. Why don't you understand the language that I use? Is it because you can't understand the words I use? You come from your father, the devil, and you desire to do what your father wants you to do. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He has never been truthful. He doesn't know what the truth is. Whenever he tells a lie, he's doing what comes naturally to him. He's a liar and the father of lies. So you don't believe me because I tell the truth? Can any of you convict me of committing a sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The person who belongs to God understands what God says. You don't understand because you don't belong to God. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, this morning we'll be looking at verse 25. Uh, we will talk a little bit about the John 8 passage that Avery read for us. Uh, but we're going to be spending our time here on this uh, one particular verse. I figured since I went through five verses last week that y'all could stomach one verse this week. So you probably didn't think I could do it last week, did you? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, put off falsehood, put on truth-telling. Okay, I normally don't do this, uh, tell jokes, but uh, this one fits. It's appropriate, okay? So, and some of you kids may know this one. When is a door not a door? Any kids know? That's a really old one. Big kid. When it's a jar. So the big kids know that one, right? So when it's a jar, okay? Now, kids, you're probably like... A door becomes a jar, right? And you're kind of like, you'll have to, okay, bear with me for a minute. So it's a play on words, right? So it's saying it's a jar. Am I saying it's a jar or it's a jar? 
one word, A-J-A-R, right? Which means that the door is partly open, okay? So a door is not a door when, it's, when it has become something else. A door is not a door when it is a jar. And, of course, it's a you know, silly little joke, but it makes a good point. A door is no longer a door when it is something else. It has become something else entirely. So when is a thief not a thief? Look at Ephesians 4, verse 28. Okay, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but this one just to kind of make the point. A thief is not a thief when? Let him who steals, that's a thief, steal no longer, but let him labor performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. So when is a thief not a thief? Well, Paul says when he becomes a hardworking giver. Okay, so you can think about it. Well, you know, he's not a thief when he's in jail. Well, yeah, he still is. His nature has not changed. He just doesn't have the opportunity to steal because he's locked up. Okay, and you keep him away from things he might steal. But a thief is no longer a thief when he is someone who works hard to provide for himself and his family and works so that he has something to give. To help others. You see, that is when you know that his heart has really changed, that he is a different person. He is not what he used to be. It's not enough to stop sinning. We might think that that's enough, but that's not enough, at least not to God. God is not interested in a moral reformation where you simply clean up your life. God's not interested in that at all. Does he want you to clean up your life? Yes. Or he wants to clean it up and work in you. But that isn't his goal. It's not simply a moral reformation. He plans to radically change us. And as we see in Scripture, and as we're going to be working through these verses uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to see that the radical changes, he's already radically changed us, But there's still radical changes he's working on in us, and those involve, one, putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13, and also putting in their place behaviors that imitate Christ. Behaviors that imitate Christ. You see, believer, you are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creation in Christ. And so, uh, biblical counselor Jay Adams, the one who was uh, instrumental in getting the church to move back to biblical counseling after most of the church had, had abandoned that and given it over to psychology, Jay Adams, he used that children's joke that I used at the beginning to illustrate that our life must be drastically different than it once was. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life needs to be drastically different. Not just, well, I I don't sin quite as much. That is not enough. That's not where God is going. Radical changes at salvation produce radical changes during sanctification. Think about that. that. We talked last week about those radical changes that happened at salvation they produce, excuse me, radical changes during sanctification. We saw last week that 
sandwiched in between put off and put on. Put off the old nature, put on the new, was this promise. You are being renewed. You are being renewed. So, when is a liar not a liar? Well, that's our text for today, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. A liar is no longer a liar, not just when they stop telling lies, but when they become a truth teller. When they are known for being a truth teller. They're still a liar if every so often they tell lies. But when they become a truth teller, they have changed. And so the main point we're driving at today is this, that arises from this verse Because radical changes have happened, that was verses 20 through 24 that we talked about last time, and I'll reference that a little bit in in a minute. Because radical changes have happened, put off falsehood and replace it with an unwavering commitment to the truth. An unwavering commitment to truth-telling. You see, so what we're doing is we're, because we have put off the old nature and put on, have put on the new nature. Now, our job is to still be putting off, putting on, but not that nature, but we're putting in, putting off and putting on, dealing with specific things that we're going to talk about. So, let's talk for a second about this truth-telling. Truth-telling is not something you do just when it helps you. Instead, a truth-teller is determined to tell the truth always regardless of the cost. You are no longer a liar when you determine to always tell the truth and uphold the truth, even when it might cost you dearly. That is a truth teller. One of the saddest saddest casualties in the pandemic is the loss, or has been the loss of truth telling. Now, the pandemic wasn't the cause. Postmodernism was the cause. Postmodernism has been attacking this idea of truth, and it has been lethal to truth. And so as you look at and you examine the, the, what's going on with these various culture wars, you find that people on both sides of them sometimes, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, consider something to be true simply because it supports their side. And I, I hear people saying things. I'm like, that's not true. But yet, that they're okay with that because it supports their side. That's postmodernism. And for them, it doesn't have to be factually true. And Christ will not build His kingdom on lies or half-truths. He will build his kingdom on pure truth, and only on pure truth. Let's take a minute to think about where we're at here in our study of Ephesians. So, in this last half of Ephesians 4, Paul is calling us to walk in holiness, to walk in a certain way, walk in holiness. And last week, we we looked at the first part of that, the believer's new position in Christ... 
verses 20 to 24, and now we're going to be starting into this new uh, part, the new book, excuse me, the believer's new conduct. We're going to be looking at the believer's new conduct, the new way that we are to live. Because we're new in Christ, we're new creations, we have a new conduct. Let me suggest three ways to picture this lingering presence of sin, because you may be wrestling with this, and some of us have been talking about this in the last few days, just how, okay, what, what is this? If I have put off the old man, the old nature, then why is there anything that's still there that I have to put off? Am I not entirely new? What is that? You know, how do you, how do you put your finger on what is this something that's still there? And so I'm going to give you three ways to picture that. We're not going to go into that in detail right now, but just some pictures. Last time I suggested one where in, in Zechariah 3, Joshua the high priest there, as he's standing before the Lord and Satan is accusing him, remember, that the angel of the Lord, and we said we've identified him as the Lord, when we know now as the Lord Jesus, he says, give him new garments. Take the filthy garments off and give him new garments. But then... Zechariah speaks up and says, oh, and give him a clean turban. So one picture that we could use to kind of understand this and wrap our minds around it is, what is it that's still there? Well, think of it as, okay, you've been given clean priestly garments, we're believer priests, but it might be the accessories like the turban the priests would wear or the sash. And so that's a just a picture for us, okay, a second picture. Think of it as, uh, as just a residue from your old garments, the old filthy garments. And so, you know, guys, if you, you're going to work on your car this afternoon, you crawl under it and you're going to change the oil or something and you, you spill oil and it gets all over your shirt, it, it'll drain through and you'll have residue on you. And that's the idea, is that the old garment had this, this you know, filthy sin and it left a residue. You have new garments now, but this is just a way of, of trying to picture this, okay? A third picture. This is one that Jesus uses with Peter. In John 13, when Jesus was washing their feet, after Peter protested initially, and Jesus said, you don't have anything, you know, any part with me if I don't wash your feet. And he's like, okay, wash my, my hand, heads, you know, just give me a bath, you know. And, and, and Jesus said, if you bathe, you only need to clean your feet. And that was a picture from their culture where you've had a bath and you go visit grandma, then on the way there, your feet are going to get dirty because they just wore sandals or barefoot or something like that. And so they needed their feet washed. So those are just three ways to picture this. And I'm going to elaborate more on these next week and elaborate on this idea of the old man, new man. and What was the old man exactly? And what is left from our old experience, our old selves, okay? So I wanted to give you these three so that you can kind of picture, start picturing that, but also be thinking about it. Because then next week as we go into it, hopefully you will have had some time to let these percolate a little bit and we'll expand on it. So, okay, that's for next time. Now, last week we learned that we have already put off the old man, that 
was another way of looking at repentance. It's where, where, you know, you had been going one direction in sin, away from God, but towards sin. And repentance means you, you turn, uh, do an about face, and you've turned your back on sin, and you, you're now walking toward God. Okay, that's the one half, of the, you know, one side of the coin in salvation. So putting off the old man is another way of talking about your repentance. You've already done that. Because you have already put off the old man, we must now, you must now put off specific sins. Okay, and that's what I was trying to illustrate, you know, those, whether it's the accessories, the dirty feet, or the residue, okay? We also saw that we have already put on the new man, and that is that flip side of salvation. Repentance is one side. Faith is the other side. So having put on the new man, like putting on clothing, that's another way of talking about faith or picturing faith. Because you have put on the new man, you must put on the proper godly behaviors. Those behaviors that correspond to the one the behavior you put off. So like today, we're talking about Put off lying. Well, what's the opposite of lying? Truth-telling, you see. So you put off lying, and then now we're going to take up and put on truth-telling to replace it. And what we're going to see today, putting it together with last week, instead of being constantly corrupted, that's what we were before Christ. Now we are being repeatedly renewed verse 23 we saw we're being repeatedly renewed and that's what he's talking about now in these verses beginning in verse 25 through 32 where he's going to walk us through here's how the spirit works and what we do in conjunction with his work to be renewed and so what paul does here in verses 25 to 32 is he gives us five of these pairs where you have a a sinful behavior and its corresponding godly behavior That's to replace it. There's five of those, okay? We're going to tackle them one at a time because each of these is significant. Each of these in his discussion has three parts. There is first a negative command. There's also a positive command. And then he gives a reason for it, a reason for those commands. And we'll see that in each one of these, okay? So, look with me again. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 25, and I'm going to read through 32, so you get kind of an overview of these five things he's going to be talking about. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So, first, the negative command. Put off falsehood. Put off falsehood. So, the first word here is therefore. And do you remember the rule? Whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself what? What is it there for? Right? Easy to remember. Okay? But you should always do that because you need to understand what's going on here. He's trying to say, because something has happened, now I need to do something. Or I need to know something. Radical changes have happened. We saw that verses 20 to 24. So Paul says, therefore you are to do something. We have put off the old sinful nature, therefore we must put off specific sins. We have put on the new godly nature, therefore we must put on specific godly behaviors. Your behavior needs to reflect who you are. The word here, laying aside those two words, from the same Greek word we saw last time in verse 22, this idea of putting off, like taking off a garment. Okay, that's how that word was used. So just like laying aside an old filthy garment, we are to be putting off specific sins. So here you can kind of think of that, that turban, you know, where Zechariah said, okay, and you need to change this turban too. The first sin that Paul mentions is falsehood. And this word can mean either falsehood or lie, so nothing real, you know, new, novel about that. Something is false because it does not conform to what is real. In other words, we don't say, or at least, you know, kids, if you, you take a test and, and 2 plus 2 equals and you put 5, it's going to be wrong. Why? Because it doesn't correspond to reality. It's not real. It's not actual. 2 plus 2 never equals 5, Okay. And, and so, it has to correspond to reality, to conform to what's real. What else does Scripture say about lies, falsehood, and this whole idea? Well, we saw back in verse 22, deception. That was a part of who we were before Christ. Deception was, that, that was how you might describe us, and Paul does. We also find, like in Revelation 22.15 and other places, liars will not enter God's kingdom. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 1 John 2.21, no lie is of the truth. And so Dr. Honer says in his commentary, in all contexts, this word is used as the antithesis of truth. Okay, so what we're talking about, putting off and putting there's not like there's some gray area in there. There's no gray area. It's either true or it's false. Okay? You say, well, what if it's partly true? Then it's false. Okay? And, and so it's, what this, the way this word is used, this Greek word is used, is as the antithesis of truth. And we might think in terms, okay, he's just talking about lying and, you know, I, I, I'm not going around lying. But MacArthur warns, yes, falsehood can be a direct lie, but it also includes exaggeration, cheating, making foolish promises, betraying a confidence, 
Flattery, you ever thought about that? Flattery is a form of lying. And that's serious. And making false excuses. So we've already seen in our previous study that truth is in Jesus. Where do lies come from then? Well, liars imitate their father. Their father, the devil. Avery read that for us from John 8. We also learn from that passage what Jesus said is that Jesus is the father of lies. He lies because that's his nature. That's who he is. And Jesus said that about about Satan, there's no truth in him. He does know what's true, but he doesn't speak it. And if he ever uses truth, it's as a little bit of truth to make you buy into a lie. Satan considers lying to be a valuable tool. You just have to walk in this world a little bit to encounter that. So many people, and it's always been this way, it's not just our generation, that if it works, use it. If by lying we achieve our goal, use it. That, that's Satan's way. And he convinces other people to do that. If, it's, if that's what will help you achieve your goal, then do it. Use lying. Use falsehood. And, and he weaves bits of truth into his schemes in order to promote lies. And so you've got to really watch. Because he'll, he'll put the truth part out there in front. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's true. But then it's woven in. There's behind it are lies. And so the whole package is really a lie. And you ever known Satan to use Scripture? He apparently knows Scripture pretty well. And he can quote it. Our Lord Jesus experienced that, didn't he? Satan's quoting Scripture right and left. And, of course, how did Jesus battle that? He just quoted Scripture right back. Like, you got to put it in context, Satan. That's what he does. He pulls it out of context. He twists it. Because what he wants to do is put you off. So that you, you hear the Scripture. And you think, okay, well, you know, if he can quote Scripture, then it must be right. And you have to be careful. He wants the lie to look like truth. He wants the lie to sound like truth. I mean, otherwise, you're not going to buy it. If he comes to you and says, and one of somebody who is imitating him comes to you and says, okay, here, I, I want to tell you a lie and I want you to believe it. I mean, they're not going to do that because you're going to like, well, no, if you're telling me a lie, then I don't want to hear it. He needs you to think that it's true in order to buy it. How about you? Will you examine the things you say? Make sure that you're only speaking what is true. Most of us probably are not in the habit of just going around lying. But are you making sure something is really true, factually true, before you repeat it? Maybe you heard somebody respectable say it. That doesn't mean it's true. And, by the way, you know, this is 
little to the side, but something might be true, but do you need to say it? Because it might be gossip. There's an awful lot of gossiping going on. And and just talking about in culture and Christendom, there's a lot. We don't need to know some of that. And... And so it may just be gossip. We need to be careful with it. So to take this first negative command and sum it up, Paul does it really well in the parallel letter of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Why? Since you laid aside the old self. Since you laid aside that old self, don't lie to each other. No more falsehoods. Okay? That's the negative command. Now the positive command. Put on truth-telling. Now, I want you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 8. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. Okay? So, the command is to put on truth-telling. That's the positive command. And what we find in Zechariah's prophecy is that God's people Israel... Remember, we went through all the minor prophets, and what did we find there? That God's people were were sinning against God, you know, decade after decade, just over and over. And, And so what God did is He sent them into exile. But He also made promises to them. He promised, for example, through Zechariah, that one day what He would do, that God Himself... To the people that he chastised by sending them off into exile, not only would he bring them back, but he would actually dwell among them. Now, that hasn't happened yet in, in the fullness of this, of this, prof, this promise. But he said, I will dwell among you in Jerusalem. And this is amazing. Verse 3, he says that Jerusalem will be called the city of of truth. Now, it hasn't been called that yet. At least not legitimately. Because it's not the city of truth yet. It will when, when Jesus reigns. And in verse 8, he says that, God says, He will be their God in truth and righteousness. He's not going to come and dwell among them and let everything just keep going the way it's been going. He's going to be their God in truth and righteousness, and those are going to reign so that it's called the city of truth. And so, then what he does there in that prophecy, after giving the promise, he says, okay, and this is how you must live in light of the promise that I've given you. You see, so promises are not just there for like, okay, great, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be fine one day. We do have hope. But also those promises should say, okay, we need to be doing something. And that's what God does. He says, okay, and here's what I want you to do. In light of this promise that I'm making that's going to happen a long time from now, I want you right now to do this. Look at his command. So, Zechariah 8, verses 16 and 17. These are the things which you should do. Guess what? Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth. And judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these things are what I hate, declares Yahweh. Yahweh commanded His people to speak truth to one another. 
And he, he puts in there in verse 17 that includes perjury. And what perjury is, is you're swearing that something which is false is actually true. And God says, you need to stop that. You need to speak truth to one another. In other words, God's people must be avid truth-tellers. Not convenient truth-tellers. Avid truth-tellers. We're Jesus' followers. And he embodies the truth. Remember, we saw that last time. So we must be known as the people of truth. That should characterize us. Absolute, perfect truth that we strive for in everything. And so Paul quoted that command from Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 8. And that is the first command on Paul's list. Speak truth. So back now in Ephesians 4. He says there in verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. What he's saying is, as we are putting off falsehood, and sometimes this is something we have to work on and keep working at it, keep putting it to death and so that, you know, it, it's going away. As you're putting off falsehood, you need to be putting in its place this habit of speaking truth. Because that's the only thing that shows that you are now a different person. Just think about, okay, you're raising your children, and one of them has a problem with telling the truth. They're just lying to you right and left. Well, you know, you put consequences in place for when they lie. Well, they may be just responding to the consequences. And they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to you know, zip it and... So I'm good if I don't tell any lies. Well, not in God's world. Because you not only have to stop telling the lies, but you have to start putting in its place truth-telling. Truth must replace lies. Truth must, must characterize your conversations. And he commands this to each one of you, he says. In other words, every individual is responsible for speaking nothing but what is actually true. And he, he puts this in this word neighbor. And neighbor, that's defined by the context. For Jesus, remember, when he's talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, it, that's a broader concept. Is anybody in your life who is in need? Somebody who comes across your path or you come across their path and they're in need. For Paul here, neighbor is... Connected to what he's going to say in a moment, you're members of one another. So, by neighbor, he means other believers in your life. And the reason he's concerned about this and why it comes up first is truth fortifies our unity. Remember, that was the first walk command, walk in unity, that we looked at in the first half of chapter 4. And Paul's concerned about that being preserved. Truth fortifies our unity. Falsehoods weaken our unity. Well, how can they have that effect on us? Well, again, verse 25. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, and here's why. For we are members of one another. So here's the reason. Remember, there's a negative command, a positive command, and a reason. Now we come to the reason. 
He says, it's because you are members of one another in the body of Christ. That's why we are to put off lying and put in its place truth-telling. See, members of a, a godly church are as close, closely related to one another as the members of a human body. You see, what you say affects all of us. And, and I like, this is a great way to, to illustrate it. The, the church father, Chrysostom, he asked a series of questions in response to this. And I'm just going to give you the first one. He said, does, does the eye see a serpent and then lie to the foot? Okay, so you're out hiking and you're walking on this trail through the woods and you come across a snake and your eye sees that there's a snake right in the middle of the path curled up and he's got his eyes on you. Okay, now your eyes see that. Is the eye going to lie to the foot? Hey, everything's clear. Just keep moving. No, because then you get bit by the snake and the whole body might die. It hurts the whole body. And so he said, you know, he's showing how ridiculous this is, right? And so when one member sins against the other by lying to them, oh, everything's fine, don't worry about it, or, or some other kind of lie, it hurts the whole body. How are just a couple things I'll suggest here. The entire church body is harmed first, like. If we don't speak truth about dangers that the flock faces, for example, your elders, we see, you know, like you do, we see all, there are dangers all out there in the world. And they, they you know, some of them try to come into the church, okay? And, and some churches are just going after those dangers, okay? Well, we survey those, we, you know, we know what they are, we hear about them, we read about them, and we consider, is our flock in danger of this, from this? Because there's a lot of them out there that we're not in, in danger of. There are things here that none of you are tempted toward. And so, so we're not gonna, probably not going to talk about that. But what if there is something that you truly are in danger of? We must speak the truth to you. And point out that danger. Some of that it has to do with ungodly behaviors. If there are people out there who, in the name of Christ, are suggesting that you behave in some way other than what we find here, like in this passage, because they feel like they're standing for what they consider to be true, we have to call that out. That's our job. That's a danger. What about worldly philosophies? Those that threaten the flock. There are a lot of bad philosophies out there. And there are churches that are buying into some of those philosophies. But a lot of them, you're, they're not a danger for you. Because of what God has done in our flock. And how He's prepared us and taught us. But some of them are. And we take those up and we will take those up. We're going to have some as we move on through Ephesians and that we're, we're going to address. We have to speak the truth. Another way to think about it is, and you've seen this, 
There are a lot of people out there that they want you to think the sky is falling. And they'll repeat anything if it gets you to think the sky is falling. Why do they do that? Because they want to rally you to their side. And this happens on, on either side of any culture war you look at. And some of it might be true. Usually what I find is there's a little bit of truth and then there's some that's not true. And you know, what, what's amazing is that they will get people who believe in God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign power to start doubting that. That's a danger. And if we repeat their lies, that can cause great anxiety hurting the church. I mean, I see this in people. They're being afflicted by that. They're consuming all of this. And the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And anxiety is just tearing them up. We need to speak truth and say, no, look, we don't need that. We don't need to know about every bad thing that's out there. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. We don't need to know all of it. Just worry about the things that threaten us, that are dangerous to us, we deal with. And again, like I said before, some of those things are true. But do we need to hear them? Are we gossiping if we're repeating them? And I think there's gossips happening, happening a lot more than people realize. So, what do I want us to take away today? Are you working to become and maintain being a committed, or excuse me, an intentional truth teller? Are you working to be an intentional Truth teller. In other words, you're watching for error to get rid of it and truth. And, and you say, do I need to speak that truth? Maybe I don't. Okay, get rid of that. But the truth I need to speak, am I speaking it? Are you an intentional truth teller? Do you verify things before you repeat them? I've had in the past people, no one here, sending me you know, emails about, oh, did you know this? You know, all these bad things, there are crazy things happening out there. And there's a lot of crazy things, okay? And so, you know, I was getting this stuff, and for one, you know, jamming up my email box, and I'm like, okay. So I just started, I would pick one, and I'd go research it, and I'd shoot back, okay, this is not true because. And two or three times of that, and they got mad at me and stopped sending stuff. So <laughs> that was like, okay, good, you know. That's what I'm talking about. And it's been around forever. I mean, I remember even in the olden days, you know, when you first had fax machines, okay? You know, and this fax would come over. It was, we call it spam now, but about some crazy thing that's happening. You know, get people worried. And they tell you, if you don't pass it on, then, you know, something bad's going to happen to you. Will you commit to only speaking what is actually factually true? That's what he means by this. Will you commit to only speaking what is actually factually true, no matter the cost? Because sometimes telling the truth, pointing out lies costs you.